0: Good morning. My name is Kathy Rochester and today's scripture reading will be 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 13 and chapter 3 verses 10 through 13 which starts on page 995 in the Black Pew Bible. If you would like to follow the reading, if you don't own a Bible, please take it with you as our gift. Please stand as you are able for the reading of God's word. 2 Timothy 1:13 and 3:10 through 13. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Maybe seated. Good morning. A bit of a gloomy morning outside, isn't it? Maybe we can bring some sunshine into this by preaching the gospel. My name is Sergei, I'm one of the pastors here, and the children are released to go to children's church. Anybody between two and eight years old should go that way in the foyer. If you're new uh, and you don't know how it works, there'll be someone in the foyer who will direct you and or your children to where they're supposed to go. I'd like to uh, make a couple announcements, just so we're all on the same page and the whole church knows about some of the things that, that the elders have decided on. We are going to return to weekly communion on September the 6th. So in a few weeks, we're going to return to weekly taking the Lord's Supper together. We are very excited as an elder board to be able to do that and have received some, um, some joyful affirmation from the body as well. Uh, you have probably already seen there's little changes to the service, to the worship service here and there. We're, we're tweaking it. We're working on it. The goal is to bring every element of the worship service to glorify Christ in a way that it moves towards specific goal, that it fits together. There's a, there's a purpose and a thought-out plan of, as to how different things fit together. So please be patient as we try different things and tweak things here and there, both musically. And also with different parts like prayer and offering and those kind of things. Uh, so just so you know, we're, we're working on it. And my final announcement is that we'll have a baby dedication on September 13th, on Sunday morning, September 13th. Uh, there are a couple babies that are getting dedicated. If you have a baby you'd like to dedicate, please talk to me. Email me or talk to me after the service and uh, I'll explain what's all involved. But it's a, it's a joyful time for the church to see a baby born to Christian parents and to dedicate that new person to be raised in the faith and to be raised in the joy of the Lord. All right, well, we're continuing our series on 2 Timothy. We've been attempting to trace the spiritual growth of one particular person. So our goal has been to look at one life and see how that life has been changed by the gospel through various stages of spiritual growth. So, for example, last week we talked about the soil from which this new gospel plant grew. So, Timothy grew up in a Christian home. He heard the scriptures read to him by his mom and his grandma. But it took Paul's preaching, first time Paul came to Lystra. Where Timothy was raised, it took his preaching for Timothy to finally grasp the gospel, be converted, and this new life to sprout. So we talked about it last week. And today, we're looking at the next stage. And using this metaphor of a growing plant, we're looking at a time when that plant is nurtured to maturity, when it's watered and cultivated to maturity in Christ. Now, throughout this series, I really would like all of us to be asking one question. That question is, am I growing? Very much directed toward self, am I growing as a believer? No matter the stage you're on, we have to consider what the next stage is for us. Am I growing? Am I growing closer to Christ? Am I growing in my faithfulness to Him? And so today we're looking at the nurturing stage. Some of you may be in that stage, so it will be more applicable to you, but all of us are in the same community going through various stages at various times. All right, so we're talking about nurturing this new plant. My outline is simple. I have three headings, three points to cover. Number one, what it takes to nurture a new believer. Number two, how it's done. And number three, why it works. So what it takes, how it's done, and why it works. All right, so what does it take to help a young, immature, brand new believer grow? Now, we need to say the obvious. It is God who gives the growth, right? It is God who actually changes hearts, who actually brings maturity into a particular person's life. But we also know that God uses other people to achieve those goals. Some plant, right, some water, but God gives the growth. And so we see in Scripture that it takes an intentional nurturing by an older believer towards a younger believer to produce this fruit under God's work in that person's heart. So according to God's design, more mature believers are expected to invest intentionally in less mature believers to nurture them and bring them to greater maturity in Christ. That's what the Bible teaches us to do. In Timothy's case, Apostle Paul was that older believer, more mature believer, who invested intentionally into his life and helped him grow in Christ. So I want to take you to Acts 16, verses 1 through 5, Acts 16, to help us see, to help us get a better picture of Paul's intentional approach. I'd like us to read it through as I read, listen, and see how intentional Paul was in investing into Timothy's life. Acts 16, verse 1, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, and they increased in numbers daily. So this is Paul's second visit to Lystra. During the first visit, Timothy converted. Now during the second visit, now Paul notices that this young believer has a good reputation among other believers at Lystra, and he recruits him to be part of his ministry team. He circumcises Timothy very intentional to remove any sort of obstacle to his ministry because he knows he's going to be talking to Jews who know that his father is Greek, Gentile, and so he wants to remove any obstacle so he can effectively minister to all sorts of people. And then, for the rest of his life, for the rest of Paul's life, he's been investing into this one person, into Timothy, taking him on various trips, sending him on various ministry assignments, keeping up with him, ministering to him personally, helping him process various events in life, various problems. Paul takes him on as his disciple, as his protege, as his associate in ministry. The relationship that now develops is like that between a father and a son. In fact, Paul frequently refers to Timothy as my beloved child in the faith, my true son in the faith. Remember, Timothy did not have a spiritual father in the home. And so Paul becomes that father to him. Paul's decision to take take Timothy along, to mentor and to train him to become a spiritual father to him becomes very, very important in the growth of this young believer. Now I know personally how important it is to be taken into someone's group to be taken along on ministry trips, to be invested in and mentored, because that happened to me. And I know what Timothy felt and how important it, is what it was for him to have Paul invest in his life because somebody invested in my life. When I was 18 years old, just two years after I was converted, there was a man by the name of Jerry Hoggett. Jerry Hoggett, who now lives in Denver, Colorado was a missionary in Ukraine in Kiev where I grew up. And he recruited me to go on a ministry trip with him and two other missionaries. And so we went to a couple of different towns in Ukraine and we strengthened the believers and we preached the gospel and we we did all sorts of things together. But I was invited to be part of that group, a young believer. I was mentored, I was trained, I prayed with them, I learned how to witness by watching them, by participating in what they were doing. This was tremendously important to me. That helped me in ways that even now I probably can't realize fully. Being accepted in that group, being intentionally invested in by a more mature believer who saw enough potential in me that it was worth for them to invest time in me. It was just a couple weeks But that relationship was true today. I still talk to Jerry. We still talk about life and spiritual things, and he's gone through all sorts of things in his life, and I have since then. But that relationship is still there. Now, that was tremendously beneficial to me. I can imagine how beneficial it was for Timothy to be included in Apostle Paul's group, be taken on those ministry trips, be invested in so intentionally to raise him in the faith, to make him a, a minister of the gospel. Now, besides being intentional, Paul's investment into Timothy's spiritual progress was very personal. It was, was relational. Second Timothy 1, verse 13, our first text, says, "...follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love." That are in Christ Jesus. Follow the pattern. Well, the pattern, pattern here means example or a sketch or a model representation. Paul is saying, look at my life, which means you have to know my life, and be like me. Model your Christian life after my Christian life. In many other places in the New Testament... Paul calls those under his leadership to imitate his life. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 16. Chapter 11, verse 1. Philippians 3, verse 17. Philippians 4, verse 9. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 6. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 7 through 9. I don't want you to write them down. I just want you to see the abundance of evidence of Paul saying, imitate me. Follow me. This is how he approached ministry. He knew that his life was to be shared with others, other people that he hoped would grow because of the exposure to his own spiritual life and ministry. There are many other people along with Timothy in whom Paul invested purposefully and personally. I'd like to suggest to us today that this kind of intentional nurturing, this kind of intensely personal, relational, life-on-life connection between more mature and less mature Christians is exactly what God uses to produce spiritual growth. New gospel plants need to be nurtured intentionally and personally. The proper setting for discipleship is the open life of a more mature Christian. The proper setting for discipleship is an open life of a more mature Christian. A church where immaturity prevails is usually a church where believers do not intentionally invest in personally nurturing others now look at second timothy chapter 3 now verses 10 through 11 now the way paul writes this it's, it's so matter of fact and yet it is such an audacious statement listen to what he says he says to timothy you however have followed my teaching my conduct my aim in life my faith my patience my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. It's a lot of my here. Paul dared to put forth himself as an example for Timothy. I want us to feel the weight and the scope of what he's saying. Paul says, Timothy, take my life as an example of how the gospel is to be lived out. Pattern your doctrine, your conduct, your ambition, your character, even your experience of suffering. Pattern all of that after me. Use me, Paul is saying, as a model Christian. Now, that's what the text says, but how does that make you feel? Does it make you feel like maybe it's a little bit too arrogant to say that? Maybe it's a little too dangerous to put yourself in that kind of position? That's a pretty bold statement. Isn't that putting yourself on the proverbial pedestal from which we tend to fall? Doesn't it sound like? I mean doesn't doesn't it sound like Paul is saying, "Look at me and do what I do, believe what I believe, behave as I behave?" It is what he's saying. That's exactly what he's saying. Well, I do not want to minimize the dangers of putting yourself forth as an example to someone else. And I will address some of that at the end of the sermon. But just because we might not do it well does not mean that we should not do it at all. You see, this is biblical practice. To put yourself as a more mature believer as an example to less mature believers. It is biblical to do that. It is practiced in the Bible. It is commanded in the Bible. We'll talk more about that when we get to the, the final stage of Timothy's development. We'll talk about helping others grow and influencing others. We'll address it in much more detail. But Paul did it. Timothy did it. The early church did it. As the older women were commanded to, to, what, to help younger women to know how to lead their families, how to love their husbands, how to run their households. It's all over the Scriptures. Older, more mature people are expected to help younger, less mature people grow. Our Lord intentionally and personally invested in specific people, didn't He? I don't think we should take this responsibility lightly. I think Paul, for example, knew full well the potential for spiritual catastrophe because he's seen other people made a mess of their lives those who were in position of influence, like he was. I think Paul knew full well the pain that such vulnerability is bound to bring when somebody rejects you and abandons you, like many did with Paul, those that he had invested in personally and purposefully. So I think Paul knows the dangers, he knows the struggles of it. And yet he still puts himself forth as an example, as a model, as a pattern for other less mature Christians to follow. And as he did this, he left a legacy of mature leaders without whom the church probably could not have survived. You look at Silas and Titus and Timothy and Many others that we just know names of in Scripture. We don't know their stories that traveled with him that Paul invested in personally. Those were the pastors. Those were the bishops of the church. Personally mentored by Paul and other apostles as well. But you see that because there are dangers and because there are struggles and because we've seen it done poorly, that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. This is a biblical pattern for more mature believers to nurture the faith of less mature believers. So with all the potential for failure and with the full realization that our pride is an issue, that we can't do it arrogantly, of course we can, we must purposefully and personally invest in others. That is how spiritual growth is supposed to happen. And if you are hesitant to do that, now let me address the more mature believers. If you are hesitant to put yourself forth as an example to someone else, as a model, as a pattern for someone else, I'd like you to listen to me. I'd like you to pay attention to what I'm saying. Giving yourself to another person as a pattern for gospel living is in itself an act of sacrificial love. As you give yourself to others, sure it could be arrogant, but it could also be the most sacrificial thing you can do for them by saying, I'm going to open my life to you. I know what that means. I know the risk of failure on my part. I know the pain that I will probably experience in this relationship and many others. And yet I'm still going to do it. Why? Because the Lord did it for me. He opened His life for us. He intentionally and personally invested in me. And so for me to say, I'm going to be humble and not put myself forth as an example for anyone else, is not humble at all. It's false humility. And practically speaking, it is denying the gospel itself. You're listening to what I'm saying, right? I'm not saying this is optional. I'm saying we're commanded to invest in other people. And if we're not investing in other people, we are denying the gospel. Because Jesus did that for us. And so why would we not do it for others? To conceal your life and to shy away from possession of personal influence is to rob others of the very means God designed for their spiritual growth. By deciding not to put yourself as an example for others, you are in fact hurting them and preventing their spiritual growth. It is a rejection of the gospel in practical terms. I know a young believer, not from this church, not from here, that has asked several more mature men in his church to mentor him because he doesn't come from a Christian home. He's struggling with particular issues, and he sees approached pastors and other people in the church that were more mature. No one has responded with a desire to mentor him. Friends, that grieves our Lord, when that happens and that should grieve us when that happens it should make us angry when young believers are not growing because older believers are not investing in them this is how the Lord has designed the church to work we all have different roles we're all at different stages of Christian maturity but for those of us that are more mature than some if you're further along in that process we're supposed to invest in those who are not where we are. Purposefully, intentionally helping them grow. That's what it takes. It takes intentionality. It takes opening your life to other people. That's how growth happens. Now, how is it done? Our next question is, how is it done? What actually happens in that relationship? What does spiritual nurturing look like? Now, when I take my children, or Jillian takes our children to the pediatrician's office, uh, usually they whip out these charts, right? You know, the growth charts, with graphs and diagrams, and, and it's very important for the doctor to figure out which percentile of, of growth your child belongs. It's very important for them to, to, to put you on that graph, to put your child on that graph. It's 90%, you know, it's, it's 10%. It's, where, where are you in that, in that growth? And the categories are weight, right, height, head circumference there's another one. They always measure the head. There's these categories by which they can measure how well the child is growing. Where do they fit in that process? How well are they doing in different areas? So I'd like us to look at the categories that... Paul gives us here, the areas in which believers are supposed to grow. Paul gives us nine different things, but I'm going to boil it down to five different categories. This is 2 Timothy three, ten through 11. You, however, followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. Those are the nine. Let's look at the five categories within them. Number one, teaching. Timothy has followed Paul's teaching. New believers need to be nurtured in their understanding of the Christian teaching. Of course, Paul is talking about the apostolic gospel doctrine. There is a contrast here because a lot of of the second Timothy is written about false teaching Paul is contrasting and saying you have followed my teaching the healthy correct gospel teaching but there's other teachings out there there's false teachings that are affecting the church and are affecting the world Paul's teaching is the right teaching and it's his teaching in a sense that he was the one who passed it on to Timothy Young believers need to be taught how to distinguish between the true gospel and the many false gospels popular in our world today. I'm always amazed to hear a long time evangelical, Bible believing, church going person just casually mention that they regularly watch Joel Osteen. That puzzles me because it's not the right gospel. How can you have lived so long spiritually? How can you have attended the church for so long and not know and not been able to distinguish that it's a different kind of teaching? That's because nobody taught them. Nobody nurtured them. Nobody explained to them when they were a young believer how to distinguish between the true gospel and the false gospel. There was a time when the apostolic gospel was neglected in the church roughly during the middle ages and we can point to one man who led the movement back to this gospel of course I'm talking about Martin Luther Martin Luther was was a major the major leader of the european reformation and so what we often assume about Luther is that he alone discovered the gospel That's not quite true. There were lots of other things happening. And what I want to talk about is an influence in his life. Another believer who nurtured him. Another believer whose teaching he followed and arrived at the gospel. Luther had a confessor, Johann von Staupitz. You don't have to remember the name, Johann von Staupitz. That's the name most people don't know today. But he was Luther's confessor. He was his spiritual mentor. When Luther was a monk, he would frequently confess his sins, sometimes for hours. Sometimes he would spend hours confessing his sins, receive absolution, leave, and come back five minutes later because he's remembered more sins. It was a problem for his confessor. It took a lot of time. And he was trying to help Luther to find forgiveness, to find grace. Staupitz himself wrestled with and thought a lot about temptation and guilt and, and, and God's judgment and God's forgiveness. So he would counsel Luther in those confessional sessions about Christ. He talked to him, to him about the sufficiency of grace, how God in Christ is no longer a judge primarily, but as one who forgives us in Christ. And so he counseled him Luther called Staupitz his father in Christ. Luther said that if it had not been for Dr. Staupitz, I should have sunk in hell. It's a pretty big statement for Luther. He said that through Staupitz, the Lord Jesus repeatedly uplifted and strengthened me in the most wonderful way. See, Luther was afraid of God. He was worried that if his sin is unconfessed, God is going to judge him. And yet from Staupitz, he learned about grace. He learned about Christ's sacrifice. He learned about meditating on the cross and deriving comfort from the cross. It was Staupitz who convinced Luther to become a Bible professor at the university, to read the Bible for himself. So think about these things that were true of the Reformation, that's true of our church, like the centrality of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, the sufficiency of grace, the exclusivity of Christ. All those things came from Staupitz to Luther. Yes, they are in the Bible, of course, they are Christian things, but Luther learned them, he learned that teaching from his confessor, from Staupitz that moved Luther that put him on that track to rediscover the gospel and to be so convinced of its truth that the whole Europe blew up you see but that's a person intentionally and personally investing in a younger believer Luther was well nurtured by someone else so that's the teaching we need to be nurtured in the teaching secondly we need to be nurtured in behavior in conduct, in a way of life. Timothy has followed Paul's conduct. Paul's life was in accordance with his teaching. And because his life was open to Timothy, Timothy could see the consistency between what Paul said and what he did. Matthew Henry, the great commentator, says, Paul did not pull down by his living what he built up by his preaching. Those ministers are likely to do good and leave lasting fruits of their labors whose manner of life agrees with their doctrine. As on the contrary, those cannot expect to profit the people at all that preach well and live ill. Those that preach well and live ill. Young believers need to see how the gospel affects behavior, they need to see examples of Christians. Applying the truths of Scripture to various aspects of life. You see, Paul allowed Timothy to see it. Because he brought him into his life, into his everyday life. And so Timothy could see how Paul was living under the Gospel. And that mattered to Timothy. That affected his life, his conduct, his lifestyle. That's how he learned to live in a Christian way. Last Monday, a sculpture was unveiled in China, in Tianjin. Tianjin has now been in the news because of the explosions, but there's another newsworthy event. A statue was unveiled. It was a statue to a foreigner, which is very unusual for China. That sculpture was of, of Eric Little. Eric Little you may know from the movie, right? Chariots of Fire. Familiar with that? He was the runner And the movie was about him, well, at least part of the movie was about him refusing to run a race on a Sunday because he believed in the sanctity of the Sabbath and he wanted to worship on a Sunday and and foregoing a victory, uh, essentially. Now, he did a lot of other stuff in his life. He was a missionary to China. He was from Scotland himself, but lived all his life, I think, he spent in China. He was a teacher, he preached the gospel. He helped others in need. And so after the Olympics, he returned to China and spent the next 20 years ministering there. Of course, a war broke out and he sent his family away. So they left China because it was too dangerous. He stayed. And he was placed in a in an uh, internment camp because he was a foreigner with many others. And he ministered to people for several years. For three years, he was in that camp, ministering to others. Now, his family had a very hard time accepting that he stayed and they left. In fact, uh, his daughter admitted that she was at the unveiling of the statue. She admitted that as a child, she couldn't understand her father's decision not to join them. She said, I remember traveling with him. I remember having fun with him. Then we didn't have him during the war. And we used to think, Why aren't you with us? It was years later, she said, when we met people who were the children in the camp that we understood there was a reason he did it. There's a movie coming out, another movie about Eric Little, and Joseph Fiennes is going to be the actor playing the main role. And this is what he had to say at the unveiling of the sculpture about Little's legacy. He said, It's one thing to preach Bible study or whatever. I take it he doesn't really quite understand what we do. It's one thing to preach Bible study or whatever. But it's another to actually live your beliefs under conditions like being in an internment camp. It's not just preaching. It's about watching someone in a set of beliefs in extraordinary circumstances, still believing those beliefs will carry him through. So, a secular actor is impressed with the story of a Christian missionary whose beliefs mirrored his behavior. He sees it. He sees the consistency. Now, he doesn't know little. I mean, he, I'm sure, read a lot about him. But imagine the impact of a more mature believer opening his life or her life to someone else and saying, Look at my consistency. Learn from me. Believe this and act this. Number three, so we talked about the teaching, the behavior. Number three is the heart. New believers need to be nurtured in their motivation for life and ministry. Timothy has followed Paul's aim in life, or we can translate it as purpose. Now usually this word is used of God's purposes. God's purpose is for salvation, but here... Paul is talking about his purpose, his motivation to live a life in a sincere, genuine, authentic way. We know that many Christians don't live authentically. We know that many pastors don't preach sincerely. Paul did, and he allowed Timothy to see it. Calvin is helpful here. He says, Paul gives to us in this sentence a very lively picture of a good teacher As one who does not, by words only, train and instruct his disciples, but opens his very breast to them, that they may know that whatever he teaches, he teaches sincerely. This is what is implied in the word purpose. The picture is Paul saying, look at not just my life, not just my teaching, but look at my very heart. Know why I do what I do. Know why I live this life. Know why I minister in this way. He's allowing Timothy to see that. I'm sure they've had many conversations about the motivation for ministry, the motivation for an obedient Christian life. Timothy knew how it worked on the inside. So now, years later, Timothy is a pastor in Ephesus and he's dealing with all sorts of teachers. And he's dealing with all sorts of situations, but he knows the true motivation, the pure heart towards ministry that he learned from Paul. Not guilt, not fear, not obligation, but a pure motivation to please your Lord and serve the people he's placed you with. Paul let Timothy see it, and Timothy learned from it. Number four, character. So teaching, behavior, heart, now character. Young believers need to be nurtured in developing godly character. So they're growing in their understanding of doctrine. They're growing in their Christian lifestyle, addressing sin issues, addressing disciplines and those sorts of things. They're growing in their motivation to do it well, to do it joyfully and graciously. And now there's these virtues, there's character traits that spring up in their lives Timothy has followed Paul's faith his patience his love his steadfastness all of those are character traits they're virtues faith, patience, love steadfastness or endurance these are virtues of Paul's character that has now, have now been passed on to Timothy's character These are the specific traits that developed as a result of the gospel's influence in Paul's life and then in Timothy's life. How important it is for new believers to observe how more mature believers practice trust in God, being patient with others, loving unconditionally, persevering through difficulties, of course, there's more to be put on this list, but that gives us a picture of what those Christian virtues are. Could you think in your own life of people that have modeled it well for you? Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's those who mentored you. You learn to be patient because you watch them being patient with their children. You learn to love unconditionally because you watch them dealing with a difficult person in their lives. You learn to endure difficulty because you saw them endure illness. That's how we learn. We watch others. And we see how the gospel that doesn't just stay in the head, doesn't just drop into the heart, but affects their very nature, affects their very character. Now they become different because the gospel works. And finally, the last one is suffering. Young believers need to be nurtured in their experience of suffering. Timothy followed Paul in his persecutions and sufferings. Paul's referring to specific events which Timothy definitely knew about, probably witnessed himself. For example, you may remember when Paul was in Lystra the first time, probably around the time Timothy got converted. Paul was taken out of the city, stoned, left for dead, and then he came back, went back into the city. You know, Timothy, I don't know if he saw it, he may have, but he definitely knew about it, he definitely heard about it. And Paul is saying, model your suffering when you are going to get persecuted. Model your response after my response. Because Paul said, from them all, all those sufferings, all those persecutions, the Lord rescued me. So he's not just saying, observe me suffer. He's saying, observe me suffer with the Lord. Observe me suffer as the Lord helps me, as he delivers me. I don't think Paul means that the Lord is going to deliver us from all of the suffering. After all, Paul is writing from prison in this very moment. You know, He's writing this letter from prison, being persecuted and suffering. And yet Paul knows that if the Lord doesn't deliver us out of the suffering, He will deliver us through the suffering. And he's telling Timothy, watch me. See the pattern of my response to suffering, the way I deal with it, the way the Lord works in me and through me as I suffer. Seeing someone suffer well is life transforming. Isn't it? You don't have to be a Christian to agree with me. There are many, many movies, there are many, many books, many, many songs that are written and made about people who have suffered well. That is tremendously inspiring for us. And in the Christian sense, we need to teach others how to suffer well. And part of it is modeling it for them. I'm going to give you another example of someone learning and being nurtured by observing someone else's suffering. This may be a little bit unexpected for you, but Stephen Colbert, do you know who Stephen Colbert is? He's, he's a comedian. He's, he's going to have the late, I think it's the Late Show, or is it Tonight Show? Maybe it's Tonight Show um, on TV. And he's coming into prominence, very popular celebrity. What many people don't know, he is a devout Catholic. He has a very strong faith in Christ. There a recent interview, and he was asked about his childhood. And the interviewer must have known well what he was asking. He knew that Stephen Colbert is a very joyful person. He's a very grateful person. He seems to not make jokes out of bitterness and resentment, as many comedians do. And so he was probing into his childhood and saying, how can you be this way when we know what happened to you when you were little? Now this is what happened. Colbert's the youngest of 11 kids. His father and two of his brothers were killed in a plane crash when he was 10 years old. He's the youngest. Everybody's out of the house by then and the two closest siblings to him, the two brothers, and his dad are gone. So he's with his mom, the rest of his childhood. This is how he remembers it. He says, I was left alone a lot after dad and the boys died. It was just me and mom for a long time. And by her example, I am not bitter. By her example, she was not Broken, yes. Bitter, no. He saw the way his mother dealt with suffering that made him a grateful and joyful person when in many cases he would have become a person like him with what happened to him, would have become a resentful and bitter person. You see, he saw a more mature believer model a response suffering now that's how it works that's how it's done this is Paul's model he's saying nurture young believers in their understanding of doctrine in their behavior in their motivation in their heart in their character traits and in their suffering raise them up use those as growth charts use those as categories to see how they're doing make sure you pay attention to all those areas. Now there's lots of application here. There's lots of application. If you are a young believer, if you are new to the faith, I want you to be nurtured. I want Chatham to be a community where we nurture young believers. Where people grow. Don't you want that? Don't you want us to be able to say honestly not wishfully, but honestly, that in our church, we pay attention to every believer, whatever stage of growth they're at. And as a body, knowing each one has a different role in it, we help everyone grow. I want to say that. I think it's true in part now. I think we see some of it working but I want this to be bigger. I want us to be able to say, people are growing in Christ at this church. You can't just come and sit and not be affected. We're we're drawing others into relationships. We're opening our lives before others. And we're saying, take me as a model. Take me as an example. Be like I am. In my teaching, in my conduct, in my motivation, in my virtues, even in my suffering, I'd like you to see how I do it so you can do it in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. For that to happen, we mature believers need to do that. We need to start investing. If you're not, some of you are, but if you're not, we need to start investing in others personally and intentionally. I'm going to finish with this. We need to talk about why it might work. Because it doesn't work all the time. I need to address this one very important aspect. We touched on it in the beginning, but we need to, we need to talk a little bit about it. There are dangers to putting people on pedestals. There is damage to be done by a leader's failure. Just a couple of days ago, I got an email. It was a mass email which tells you how bad it can be. A mass email to everybody in this one particular denomination that, that I am a part of. That one of the high-level leaders has resigned because of moral failure. I can't imagine the damage it has caused and is going to cause. So it's real. Some that put themselves in positions of influence as they should end up doing a lot more damage than anything good. It does happen. We live in this culture, in this Christian culture, where we worship celebrities and many of them fall. We have to acknowledge there's a real problem with that that our pride is often in the way, that we often are not good examples, we're not good models for others to follow, we're not good patterns for others to fashion their lives after. So how can we fulfill this biblical call to personal and intentional nurturing of others in the time when scandals like the one involved in Josh Duggar, a very recent one, I'm just mentioning his name because it's the recent one. But those scandals are all too common. How do we deal with that? Here's how Paul did it. Remember, Paul placed himself on that role intentionally. He gathered a lot of younger believers around him and invested in them, and he left a legacy of those people becoming mature believers in the church. This is how he did it. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. He gives us another clause to his commandment to others and encouragement to others to imitate him. It's very important. I think it's assumed in other passages, but it's explicit here. He says, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Imitate me to the degree that I imitate Christ. As I am trying to imitate Christ, you imitate me. Whatever I'm modeling to you is what I'm getting from Christ. For us to nurture others, we must ourselves be continuously nurtured by Christ. If we're going to keep balance on the pedestal, we need the mighty right hand of God to steady us. Otherwise, we will fall. We will fall. The default is going to be falling, not staying. But if we hold on to Christ, and as we imitate Him, we call others to imitating us, there is a chance it might work. This is how it's supposed to work. This is why it worked with Paul and many, many other Christians throughout the history of the church and in our own lives. When I do premarital counseling for couples, and we talk about children. We talk about having children and raising children. It's an important part of marriage for most marriages. We talk about the best thing. This is one truth I try to communicate in that session. I say, anything else you remember is, is great. You know, Any other books I've recommended you read, it's going to be helpful. But there's one thing you need to walk away with. And that is the best thing you can do for your children is to pursue your own walk with christ if you do that everything else is probably gonna be okay you're gonna figure out the right technique eventually but if you don't have that no technique is really gonna help you the best thing you can do for others whether it's your children that you're raising in your home whether it's your spiritual children you're investing whether it's your friends whether it's kids in your school whoever is in your circle of influence, the best thing you can do for them is for yourself to pursue Christ. As you do that, yes, place yourself on a pedestal. Put yourself as an example to others in humility, in reliance on Christ, in dependence on the Holy Spirit, but do that intentionally and personally to help others grow in Christ. As you focus on Christ, you will not sink like Peter. As you keep your eyes on Him, others who keep their eyes on you will be okay. I'm going to leave you with this one quote, my final Scottish reference for the day. This streak is alive. Robert Murray McShane says, and this is a familiar quote to some of you, For every look at self, take ten looks at Christ. If we do that, for every look at ourselves, if we take ten looks at Christ, we can be, we will be, a pattern, an example, a model for other less mature believers. Let me pray. As I pray, I'd like the musicians to come up. We're going to sing. As we sing, I'd like us to reflect on this. Am I being nurtured by Christ? Am I investing in others? Do I need nurturing by other people? Let's apply it in our lives. Father, we are thankful that you are a master gardener. It is you who gives the growth. We are fully convinced that unless you are at work in a person's life, it doesn't matter how hard we work. Change is not going to be lasting. It's not going to be real. But we also know that you use us. You use people to water and to plant, to nurture and to cultivate, to prune sometimes even. And so we want to be people used by you to help others grow. Those of us that are just starting our Christian life, perhaps just recently got converted, not sure where to go, I pray that you would send more mature believers into their lives. Send us into their lives. Those new believers that are here today, I pray that they will not leave the building today without establishing some sort of connection with a more mature believer who will be able to help them grow. Grow in their understanding of the gospel. Grow in their commitment to Christian lifestyle grow in their growth and motivation for ministry, the sincerity of the heart, in virtues, character traits, and even as they learn how to suffer in a Christ-like way. Lord, I pray that as we worship now and as we worship in our homes and at work and at school and our relationships and in our leisure we would keep our eyes on you. They will be focused on you and for every look we take at ourselves, we would take 10 looks at Christ, our savior, who died and rose for us. We offer you this worship in his name. Amen.